How do investors celebrate the end of summer? By getting ready for the rest of the year. Motley Fool Money starts now. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me on the show, senior analysts Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. Good to see you both. Hey. Hey, hey Chris. It is our fall preview. We've got thoughts and predictions for the last four months of 2022. We will take a closer look at stocks and trends to watch. But let's start with the market in general. Here's how the major indices have done through the first two-thirds of the year. Dow Jones Industrial Average down 12%, S&P 500 down 16%, and the NASDAQ down 24%. Jason, let me start with you. I know we're long-term investors, (laughs) but how are you feeling about the rest of this year? Uh, well, how am I feeling about the rest of the year? I feel like we probably need to buckle up. I feel like the rest of this year is probably going to be a lot like the, the first part of the year. Um, perhaps we see a little bit more certainty develop as as we see the 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 Fed strategy sort of play out here. Maybe maybe that was a little bit more of a question mark at the beginning of the year, but it, it does feel like we are just kind of having to, to more or less eat the volatility, so to, so to speak. Um, now, with that said, I, I, I don't look at this stretch as a time where investors really should be looking to, to bury their heads in the sand either. I mean, we hear the narrative, I think, every year we talk about it, too, is, is September, historically, it, it's a bad month for stocks, right? Um, and, and that may be the case, right? The, the, the data is certainly there to tell us that, it, that it's a challenging month. But I would argue that if it's a bad month for stocks, well, then that means, really, it, it's a good month for investors. Now, I, I, I want to make sure I, I qualify that investors, right? Not traders. I mean, I'm talking about investing, sort of that net buyer mentality that Warren Buffett uh, often often speaks of. If you are an investor and you have the luxury of being able to take the long view, right? Investing with a strategy of five years and longer, I think you need to be looking at these stretches as the times where real money is made. I mean, we go back to 2008, I think it's a great example. Uh, I mean, you think this is a tough time, right? I mean, 2008 was was brutal. I mean, I think the market was down something like 36.5% for the year, so it can always get worse. But, I mean, when you look at the market's performance since then, uh, you're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 350% returns since then. Right now, that's from the bottom of 2008. But the point is that that was precisely the time where you don't want to be burying your head in the sand. That was precisely the time where you wanted to be investing. And I view this period very much the same way. It just requires being able to take that longer view. Emily, how are you feeling? Well, I'm actually feeling pretty good. And it might be because, you know, it's Friday, we're headed into the long weekend <laughs> here. But I have plans to get this Mapal tofu that I've been thinking about for a week. So I'm in a pretty good mood. But when it comes to the market in general, I mean, Jason said it best, we're not in the business of predicting market bottoms. And thank goodness that we're not, because our track record would be abysmal <laughs> if we were. There are a lot of great minds that are saying, look, we're looking at another 20, 30% drawdown headed into the back half of this year. 
um, even into 2023, I have to say, I'm feeling pretty good because even if that does materialize, it's a great time to be investing. Even if we're looking at a short-term drawdown of 20 to 30% from where we are now in the broader markets, we know that markets go up over time and the money you invest today will be well-suited to provide long-term returns in the future. Emily, thank you for reminding everyone it's a long week. The market is closed on Monday for the Labor Day holiday. Um, Let me stick with you. What are you most interested to watch over the next four months? Well, counterintuitive to what I just said, I'm actually really interested in looking at holiday shopping. That's because we just heard from retailers that there's this big question mark about what consumer consumer sentiment is going to look like at large. We had the Fed rate hikes, inflation rising, but employment is still showing a really strong economy. And I'm really interested to see what the buying habits of people will look like in the back half of the year, because we've seen inventory levels rising at a lot of retailers. They're betting on strong consumers. Jason, what are you going to be watching over the next four months? A lot of uh, NFL, Chris. Plenty of football. <laughs> We're getting ready to get it kick-started here next week. Um, but I'd imagine this this question really revolves more around investing. So let, let's go in that direction. Uh, I, honestly, you know, I and I feel a little bit odd saying this, but the, the Fed's language, I, I, this is going to be something I think that really will will be almost entertaining to watch play out over the course of of, of the of this the remainder of this year and even in the next. I mean, as someone who doesn't I don't I don't let the Fed dictate my investing strategy, but but I also think it's key that they really see this thing through, right? I mean, they they got it wrong with transitory, right? I mean, that was something we heard them espouse for a while and they got it dead wrong. Now that's okay. I mean, when you get something wrong, you get out there, you admit it, you figure out how to make it better. Uh, it costs them some time, but I think they're on the right track uh, now, right? I mean, I feel like we flooded our economy with, with a ton of relief capital. Uh, that's done, right? The reasons that, that it was done uh, for, you could debate, I think, until the cows come home, but what's done is done. The, the impacts of that need to be accounted for, right? And, and that's what we're going through right now. And so for me, I feel like they, they're doing a great job of holding steady. I really just want to see the Fed continue to be consistent with the language that they're getting out there. Uh, Powell talking about possibly some pain coming coming with, with uh, this strategy. Sometimes you just got to suck it up, right? You, you got to take a little bit of short-term pain for that longer-term gain. I think they're doing the right thing. I really want to see them maintain the consistency in that language and, 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 and adhere to this strategy that they've employed so far, because I feel like it's the right strategy. I feel like it's working. It's just going to take some time. It'll take a little bit of pain. Emily, there are a lot of stocks that are down year to date. There are a lot of companies that are looking to turn things around. But who especially do you think needs a strong end to 2022? Well, I'm about to turn this question around you, Chris, because I think my answer here may not be what you're expecting. I think Lululemon actually needs a strong end to 2022. And that is counterintuitive because they've had an incredible year so far. They came out with quarterly reports earlier this week that showed total comps rising 23%, well ahead of what Wall Street had estimated. Um, Direct-to-consumer revenue rising to 42% of total sales. Um, Incredible performance from Lululemon. Lemon, but the problem is that their inventory rose 85% in the quarter. And if you look at their inventory over the last three years, it's risen by a 38% CAGR over the past three years. So headed into the back half of the year, they're betting really big that they're going to be able to sell this inventory in at full price. And that's an aggressive statement when we've seen other retailers having to wholesale their inventory. 
One more reason to watch holiday shopping. Jason, what about you? Who needs a strong end to the year? Yeah, I mean, not not a company that I, I own shares in. It's it's one that I've recommended, though, in the in the augmented reality service. Um, it's Meta, right? Looking at, at, at where Meta is today, I mean, it's had, obviously, a very difficult year. Shares are down 50% year-to-date. The stock is now valued at around 14 times earnings, which seems pretty glass-half-empty for such a large company with such a... a a, a massive network, right? Uh, but but I do I do get it. I, I get that glass half empty perspective. I mean, they're making this big pivot to the metaverse. That is something that is still very unproven. We just don't know how that ultimately is going to impact the business. They're investing a lot of money up front there uh, for something that that may or may not pay off. We just don't know. So that, so that is sort of the uncertainty I think that's reflected in the share price today. We saw news of a chip deal with Qualcomm and building out their metaverse aspirations. I think that's a Good sign, right? Uh, saddling up with a company like Qualcomm gives you gives you a lot of a lot of opportunity there. But it, it, we've got an election coming up here in November, Chris. It, it's obviously a very polarizing time in this country. Uh, this there's a good chance this company could be square in the headlines again, and not for good reasons. I mean, they are already dealing with aftershocks from the 2020 election, how they deal with information on their sites, censoring some stuff, pushing other stuff. It gets people in a real tizzy, <laughs> and, and, and that's understandable. And, and so, you know, I look at their pivot to the metaverse, and I think they could they could uh, sort of separate themselves from that kind of stuff. But it's it's gonna it's gonna take some time, much like much like Powell's speech there. It's gonna take some time, and it's probably gonna take a little bit of pain. Um, so, so for Meta, it feels like it's gonna get worse before it gets better. After the break, our fall preview for investors continues with a couple of stocks that are starting to look attractive. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Emily Flippin and Jason Moser. It is our fall preview special for investors. Emily, we're going to play a round of fill in the blank. Let's start with this. When is blank going to spend money on blank? A lot of optionality there. You can take it in any direction you want. I'll take it in this direction. When is Zoom going to spend money on anything? <laughs> uh, Zoom at this point <laughs> is like a dragon just sitting on its hoard of cash, refusing to let go of even a single cent. They have more than five and a half billion dollars of cash sitting on their balance sheet right now. I have been twiddling my thumbs waiting for Zoom to make a big move for a while. And I've always assumed that it was going to be a large, meaningful acquisition. But at this point, with their slowing growth, now I'm wondering, should they just start paying a dividend to shareholders? <laughs> because they should just lean into the slower growth reality, right? Shareholders might actually reward that type of uh, action with a share price increase. I wonder how that move would be Received because it, it, what you said there makes perfect sense. Although I feel like Zoom is a young enough company and recently enough a, a growth company where there are some investors who I think would freak out and not in a good way that they would start paying a dividend. I, I say it a little tongue in cheek, but I agree with you. I think there are people who own Zoom for its growth potential who would think to themselves, this is no longer a great fit for my portfolio. But I do think there's a whole different class of investors who would look at Zoom's really nice, strong, competitive moat, great, inspiring leadership team, strong technical advantage, plus pretty slow, predictable growth and think to themselves, if they pay out even a portion of their free cash flow in the form of a Dividend, this could be a very lucrative income investment. Jason, fill in the blank. 
Well, I, I was going to go with uh, Salesforce here, and when are they going to start spending money on themselves, right? And, and, and Salesforce is a business that has, for a while here now, made investments and acquisitions, and um, those acquisitions have have uh, boosted the share count outstanding, right? As they use some of those shares as currency, um, it, it just it feels like share uh, the share price represents a reasonable value today. And lo and behold, this most recent quarter, Salesforce announced their first share repurchase authorization ever, a ten billion dollar share repurchase purchase authorization. So, that was what I wanted to go with. Now, Chris, what I'm going to go with, because let's let's face it, Salesforce is doing that. So, congratulations. Hats off to you, Mark Benioff. Um, and I, th- I think you reminded me that, that I actually, I, 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 uh, I talked about this last year. I think this same show and this same question, and I'm going back to it, Chris, because one year later, nothing has changed. When is Chipotle going to invest in breakfast. When are they going to spend money on rolling out breakfast on a national scale? It just seems to me to be such a no-brainer. You look at the QSR and the fast casual markets, they combine for a U.S. opportunity of around $12 billion today in breakfast, and that's expected to grow 6% annually or better over the next several years. And Chris, the International Journey, the Journal of, of Gastronomy and Food Science, they found that coronary heart disease increases. The chances of CHD increase by 27% among the North American population who regularly fail to have breakfast. Chipotle, you can save lives. I implore you, get the, get the breakfast burrito out there. We want it. We want it. Emily, a lot of stocks have pulled back in their share price, but it doesn't mean they're necessarily cheap. So, fill in the blank. Don't let the recent drop fool you. Blank is still an expensive stock. Well, I don't know how I'm going to follow breakfast burritos at Chipotle, <laughs> which I agree, we've all wanted for a while. But that is not an expensive stock. In fact, I'd say Chipotle is one that I think qualifies in the opposite direction. But there is one that comes to mind. I would say, don't let its you know around 30% drop in 2022 fool you. Airbnb is still an expensive stock. Now, this is an incredible business that has gained a ton of market share, lots of love across from many analysts here at The Fool. But the business still trades at 23 times cash flow, over 50 times earnings. Now, it's growing substantially, nearly 60% year over year in the most recent quarter. But that growth has aggressively slowed down. And I do think that Airbnb may be headed for a post-pandemic pullback here, facing the, the slowing reality that other software and other businesses have headed out of the pandemic. They're benefiting a lot from, from travel that has been backlogged. I worry about what their revenue growth is going to look like headed into 2023 as that growth continues to substantially slow down. I think if revenue growth does slow down here to around 20 to 15%, then you could be looking at a valuation contraction. Jason, what about you? Yeah, well, we saw just just uh, the other day here, right? Okta selling off uh, on, on its recent earnings report, uh, something like what 33 percent for the day. And, and I know the knee jerk reaction is, oh, that's that's just an overreaction, buy on the dip. I, I, I would I would be careful there. I, I think I mean they 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 recorded a decent enough quarter. But I mean, you're still looking at a business that has no profits to speak of. They do not make any cash flow to speak of. Stock based compensation is still a just massive percentage of total revenue. Uh, and, and even after the sell-off, the stock is still valued at around six and a half times sales. Now, 
please don't don't misunderstand. I'm not saying Okta is a bad business, but we're talking about a stock that still looks expensive today. And, and I think that when you consider everything that's on the table for this business right now, they're having difficulty with this Auth0 uh, acquisition, right? Integrating Auth0 into the into their uh, in, in, into their business, and and they've seen some attrition due to that. Uh, they are migrating over to a single customer relationship management uh, a solution, and that is something that should help. But ultimately, what this all has resulted in is they they took that that uh, revenue target off of the table that they had for fiscal 2026. I think they were targeting four billion dollars in revenue for 26. Uh, they they went ahead and they. They took that off the table as they sort of reassess the state of the business and where they feel like they can go over the next few years. So again, I, I think it's it's not a bad business. Don't get me wrong, but but clearly uh, things have changed a little bit, right? And this could be a little bit of a slower growth story going forward. We'll need to learn more. So, so I just don't look at that sell-off and, and, and think that Okta is automatically a cheap stock today. On the other hand, Emily, blank is starting to look much more attractive. Chewy. Oh my gosh, the business is down 58% this year, 20% this month alone, selling off this week after earnings. But all the customer fundamentals are still very much intact. Net sales per active customer grow healthily. And 11% revenue growth, while not meeting the market's expectation, is nothing to scoff at in this environment. Jason, what about you? Yeah, very difficult time to be an enterprise software, but I do feel like Twilio now is starting to look more attractive than ever. I mean, I think when you look at the bigger picture, uh, management's very confident in their growth trajectory and the profitability goals for 2023 and beyond. Uh, more than 275,000 active customers now versus 240,000 just a year ago, and they continue to call for organic growth of around 30% for this for this current quarter. Ultimately, it's the market they serve in communication. It's sticky. It's essential. They do a really good job of it. And now you've got a business that's trading. It's, it's valued at around three and a half times sales, which I, I wouldn't argue is cheap. Don't get me wrong. But profitability is just around the corner. And this is an important business for a lot of its enterprise customers. We've got about a minute left. Let's end with this one. Early next year, Gatorade is launching a new energy drink called Fast Twitch, which contains twice the caffeine as 24 ounces of Red Bull. So, fill in the blank, Emily. Forget Fast Twitch. The consumer product that I want to see is blank. Fast nap, man. <laughs> a drink that contains a double dose of NyQuil and melatonin. That's what I need. Something to knock me straight out. <laughs> Not where I thought you were going. Jason, what about well, you? I know everybody would just say, hey, man, you've got your phone. But, hey, how about a little Traeger TV? Let's, let's, let's put a TV screen in the Traeger grill, like on the Traeger. This is a this is a high-tech device already. So let's just incorporate some video on there. You could watch some you could watch some grilling lessons. You might be able to watch the game while you're smoking something. And I mean if we want to really take it to the next level, let's throw a fridge in that puppy while we're at it. And I mean at that point, do you even really need to go anywhere? A heat resistant television though, right? Oh sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Jason Bowser, Emily Flippin, thanks so much for being Thank here. You. Thanks, Chris. Here I am just a grillin' and chillin' My favorite kind of town killin' Up next, we're going to revisit one of our most popular interviews of the year with best-selling author Dan Pink. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Got it made in the shade with a radio play. Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Dan Pink is the author of multiple best-selling books, including Drive, To Sell is Human, and When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. 
His latest book is The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Earlier this year, I got the chance to talk with Dan, and until I had read his book, I had never really thought of regret as being something with great power. So I started the conversation by asking, what got him interested in this topic? I realized that I had regrets of my own. Um, and if there was a catalytic moment, and you can cer certainly relate to this with two kids in, in, in college, is that I had my elder daughter graduated from college um, in 2019. And I'm at her graduation, and I'm having this out-of-body experience where I, I can't believe this kid is old enough to graduate from college. And I also can't believe that I have a kid who's graduating from college because I'm like 24. Um, and so I'm having this out of body experience and I'm thinking about, well, what, what, what was my college like? And I started thinking about all these regrets that I had, um, that I didn't work hard enough, that I didn't take enough risks. Um, one that really bugs me is that I felt I wasn't kind enough. And when I came back, I just sort of sheepishly mentioned it to a few people. And Instead of the recoiling, people leaned in, which to my surprise, they really wanted to talk about this. And so I started looking at some of the academic research on it, and I ended up actually putting aside a book that I was writing at that moment and um, spent a month researching regret and then wrote an, an entirely new proposal and had to go to my editor and say, I got some good, I got some good news and some bad news. The bad news is the book you think I'm writing, I'm not gonna do that anymore. <laughs> the good news is that I think I have something better. Yeah, I, I did have that thought because um, I, you and I have talked about this before. Yeah. I remember talking to the Scott Galloway about this. Um, it doesn't matter how successful a nonfiction writer is um, when they go to their publisher with, here's my idea for a book. Uh, as often as not, the publisher will be like, oh, God, really? You want to do that? You know, There's no trust in the, in the track record. Um, so it, it's nice to know that they responded the way they did. Um, and as you indicated, there, there is a lot of research on this topic. You mm -hmm. get to some of the research in your book, uh, but you did research of your own. What uh, can you can you share sort of your thought process around um, the the research that you originated and how you went about it? Sure thing. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm, and thanks for asking about that because I'm really I'm, I'm kind of psyched about that. So I did look at about 50 years of research in mostly in social science, some um, you know neuroscience and medical science on regret. But I also did two projects of my own. One of them was something that I called the American Regret Project, where working with a company called Qualtrics, I put together a what, the largest public opinion survey of American attitudes on regret ever done. Uh, we surveyed 4,489 Americans. Beautiful, gorgeous representative sample and to ask a whole bunch of questions about American attitudes about regret, in part to try to understand if there were what demographic differences there were. At the same time, I did something else, which I called the World Regret Survey, where I guess it basically just set up a website and invited people to contribute their regrets, hoping to get several hundred. And I got well, I mean, we're over 17,000 now. <laughs> so, ended up with 16,000 regrets from 105 countries. And those proved an, just an incredible, incredible source of insight and emotion and, you know, in a, in a weird way, inspiration. And you include some of them in the book. Every chapter begins with a few regrets that actual people have sent you. I was struck yeah. by the fact uh, that there's such an enormous range of things that people regret. Um, some people regret uh, what on the page seem like very big decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, but there, are, I, I was really struck by the people who 
have a regret of something they did long ago, and it seems like kind of a small thing, and yet it stuck with them, and and maybe that gets to sort of the power of regret that um, that it doesn't matter how small it is, it can stick with you. You know what? Most people, it's it's a fascinating insight that you're that you're making there because very few people talked about regrets in terms of their size. The fact that it happened and it was meaningful to them is is enough. And I think what's interesting is while there, and I think your insight is is really powerful here. So while there is a wide variety of regrets about the domains of life, so we have people. I mean, one one of them that really stuck with me was a. A seventy-something-year-old woman in New Jersey who regretted stealing candy when she was a kid. You know, sixty years later, she's still bugged by that. Um, so they come. They, uh, you know, we have people re- with regrets about careers and health and romance and family and so forth. So they 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 run the gamut of the whole human experience. But what I found in looking at those that giant trove of regrets was that deep down. Around the world, it's kind of amazing. People kept expressing the same four core regrets over and over and over again, irrespective of the domain. And and the, and that took me to a place through this avenue of regret that I didn't expect to reach. Right. So the the uh, and and this is where you and your team really build on the research of the past fifty years with categorizing the four types of regret: um, foundation, boldness moral and connection. Did that just sort of become apparent over time? Like, oh, we're starting to see this pattern and it breaks into these four groups? Sort of. You know, I'd love to tell you a story of how I bolted upright in the middle of the night and had this epiphany about the four core regrets, but but it was much more uh, undramatic and laborious than that as I was just reading through these regrets and trying to categorize them and you know sort of thinking of categories on the whiteboard. But the other thing is that, is that these two different pieces of research work together. So for instance, when I did the quantitative survey, I thought I was going to get at the question of what people regretted. Um, and I had them categorize their regrets by domain. And what I found found is what researchers have been finding for 50 years is that they regret a lot of things, just as you're saying, they, they span. And it's like, God, that's so unsatisfying. And so I started thinking a little bit differently about the, the qualitative regrets. And there I started seeing some patterns. Let me give you an example, because I think that this it, it makes it makes more sense in the in the specifics. So let's take a regret. Okay, so so I know that a lot of the fools are entrepreneurs. I'll give you one of my, I'll give you an entrepreneurial idea here, fools. Start a travel agency that serves people who went to college who regretted not studying abroad. I've got hundreds of those. All right, so 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 that's so so think about that regret. So that's call that an education regret. Then I've got people, hundreds around the world, who have a regret that says, "Ugh, I've always wanted to start a business. I've always wanted to go out on my own, but I never had the guts to do it." Okay, that's a career regret. Then I have once again hundreds around the world. Who almost with the exact same formulation. X years ago, I met a man slash woman whom I really liked. I wanted to ask him her out, but I was too chicken to do it. And I've always regretted. Okay, that's a romance regret. But to my mind, it's, as I started seeing this, those are all the same regret. Those are all regrets about boldness. Those are all regrets about being at a juncture in your life and having a choice. Do I play it safe or do I take the chance? And when people play it safe, they often regret it. Not always, and when they take a chance, they don't always relish it, but it's pretty overwhelming. 
that we regret not taking that chance. That's boldness regret. And and to me, all these four core regrets reveal something. I mean, I mean, again, it's weird, Chris, because I didn't expect to go there. But all these four regrets, in a, in a way, reveal like what makes life worth living. And one of the things that makes life worth living, one of the components of a good life. Is like doing stuff, trying stuff, learning, growing, leading a psychologically rich life, and so, so boldness regrets are one of the core, are, are one of the, are one of the really most significant regrets that people have. I think that's the probably the the category that most stock investors can identify with, because the two of the biggest regrets when it comes to investing are, I should have bought this stock earlier or I should not have sold this stock. Mm. And the reason we don't buy the young, upstart, unprofitable company is because of the risk factor involved in it. The reason we don't, you know, the reason we sell um, that young, unprofitable, upstart company after it's gained 30% in a year is like, oh, this isn't going to, you know, it's playing it safe instead of being bold. I think in many ways, these four core regrets go to not only the how we invest, but to some extent, why we invest. So, I mean, so a good example of it, which you see over and over again, I mean, think anybody who's listening to this probably doesn't have many in this first category of foundation regrets, but foundation regrets are, you know, if boldness regrets are if only I'd taken the chance. Foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work. And what that means is people who regret not studying hard enough in school, a lot of those. Smoking, huge numbers of people regret smoking. Um, not taking care of their health uh, and not saving money. And one of the things that comes out with, I mean, obviously fools know this, is the power of compounding interest in both the literal and metaphorical sense. And, and foundation regrets are these things where you make small decisions early that seem to have no huge consequence, but over time they accumulate and then they become kind of unstoppable. So I have one guy who I found very poignant who said, you know, uh, I'm gonna, he says, I regret not saving money diligently ever since I started working. Um, he's 43. It's nearly crushing every day to think how hard I've worked over the last 25 years, but financially I have nothing to show for it. So, so, and, and what does that tell us though? And, and I think it's something that fool investors understand is that an element of a good life is stability. We want to have some kind of stable platform. When our lives are unstable, when our lives are chaotic and unpredictable, that drains our ability to lead a satisfying life. And so, foundation regrets are a challenging one because the nature of regret requires some kind of agency on the part of the person who has the regret. They have to, you know, it's regret is your fault, not. Um, someone else's fault, but with foundation regrets, it's, it's can be it can be kind of challenging. So it's it's harder to save if you graduate from college, burdened with massive student loans. Um, it's harder to do well in university if you went to a secondary school that wasn't very good. Um, so with foundation regrets, we have to be a little bit careful of agency, but they're really really important. And and having that stable foundation is extraordinarily important to people. More with best-selling author Dan Pink right after the break. So stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. This Labor Day weekend, we're revisiting one of my favorite conversations of the year with best-selling author Dan Pink. His latest book is The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. 
One of the things he writes about in the book is how we can use our regrets to think in more positive ways. And one of the techniques for doing that is something called self-distancing. One of the reasons Dan is such an engaging writer is because of his ability to find creative role models to use as examples of self-distancing. The self-distancing um, is, is such a great strategy. I have to confess, though, um, I was surprised reading your book uh, to see the comparison between Julius Caesar and Elmo. I was not expecting that, um, but you're right. Those are, you know, Julius Caesar, Elmo, the, they're big for talking to the, you know, referring to themselves in the they third talk person. About, they both talk about themselves in the third person. And so spanning, you know, a, a long amount of time and and arguably a span of species suggests that this is, that this, this, this technique is somehow, um, useful to us. And, and this is actually, this is actually a, an important thing in, in sort of how we analyze human beings. It's like, we think about something like regret, all right? Why, regret is the, is, the, is the second most common emotion that people express overall. It's the most common negative emotion that people express. So why is that? It must serve some purpose, right? Um, you know, like we wouldn't, all of us wouldn't be feeling bad if there wasn't a reason for it. And the reason for it very clearly in the research is that if you deal with it right, it's instructive. It points a way forward. And so never looking backward is a, is a colossally stupid idea. What you want to do is you want to look backward, but you want to look backward in a particular way that allows you to, you know, understand where you understand your choice, um, um, sort of unburden yourself of that choice, extract a lesson from that choice and apply it going forward. Is part of the process, um, trying to do a better job uh, in setting our own expectations. I just think about the um, the research you have in your book around Olympic athletes, and in particular, Olympic medalists, and how across the board, people who win the bronze medal are happier than people who win the silver medal, even though the silver medal is a greater achievement, uh, but the bronze medalists, um, it, you know, in some cases, it's people who are just happy that they got a medal at all. And yeah. so maybe expectation setting is a, is a part of that. It is a big part of that. What, what that shows is that, again, our cognitive machinery is, is programmed for that kind of counterfactual thinking. And there are two different ways to do that counterfactual thinking. One is to imagine how things could have been better. And that hurts. That's what regret is, but it's instructive. The other one, which is actually an okay tactic sometimes, is to imagine how things could have turned out worse. That's what I call, you know, the, the, uh, an upward counterfactual regret is what I call an if only. But the, the downward counterfactual, how it could have turned out worse, isn't at least. So, you know, so the, the silver medals are saying, oh, if only I had, I talk about a bike race in the book, if only I had pedaled a tiny bit harder. I'd have won a gold rather than a silver. Whereas the bronze medalist is like, oh my God, at least I didn't slip from the lead like that other rider and lose out on the medal stand altogether. I, I described this race, which I, I didn't I didn't see live, but I saw you know video of it. And you know, when they come over the finish line, the bronze medal, the, the, the silver medalist, who just placed second in the Olympics, she has her face buried in her hands. And the the bronze medalist is, is exultant. Um, and so th this tells us something. Now, how do we apply that going forward? There's certain, for certain kinds of regrets, particularly regrets of action, um, 
we can use that at least mechanism. And so we have, so I, I sell that a lot in the, in the database of regret. So you had people who said, so you're basically finding a silver lining that can make you feel better. It doesn't necessarily make you do better, but it can make you feel better and feeling better is, is, is okay sometimes. So the most common one of that was in the database was, I mean, once again, dozens and if not hundreds of people, I think they were all women who said, oh, I really regret marrying that idiot, but at least I have these two great kids. So that's the, that's the silver lining. So you can, so you can take certain kinds of regrets and at least them certain kinds of action regrets. You can also undo, you know, you get it. I mean, you, you get a tattoo and you're like, Oh, that was a stupid idea. You can have the tattoo removed. Yeah. That's uh, one of my favorite stats in your book that, uh, for all the people uh, touting, they have no regrets. The tattoo removal business in America is a $100 million a year business. Yes. Um, maybe that's, maybe, maybe, you, maybe your, your analyst should be looking for a, you know, publicly held tattoo removal technology. Uh, when you and I talked about your last book, uh, when the scientific secrets, uh, uh, you said the research changed the way you live your life. Um, yeah. When you make medical appointments, for example, um, they are always in the morning. And by the way, having read your last book, I'm the same way. All medical appointments are before yeah. noon. All important, um, all important medical appointments. I, like, I, like, um, like. I mean, I'll do a routine teeth cleaning in the afternoon. Although I actually scheduled, because I think your your listeners want to know this. I actually scheduled my next teeth cleaning uh, for eight a.m. In case you were wondering, in case you were wondering about my my dental hygiene here, good to know. Has your work on this book, the research you've done, um, any changes for you personally? Yeah, uh, several. Um, I'll tell you. I'll tell you the biggest one. Uh, it has to do with connection regrets, uh, which was the biggest category of regrets. And connection regrets are if only I, if only I had reached out. And I heard so many stories all over the world of people who had a relationship or should have had a relationship and it came apart and and not as not romantic relationships but relationships with parents or kids or siblings or other relatives or friends my gosh chris i mean so much stuff about friends and these relationships come apart in profoundly undramatic ways <laughs> they just drift apart and what happens is that nobody wants so someone says oh i i, I should reach out but it's going to feel really awkward and the other side won't care and they're wrong they're just flatly wrong on both counts. It's less awkward than you think, and the other side almost always cares. And so for me, the big takeaway, and it's one of the things I'm actually trying to work on this year, is to just reach out more to people who I were friends, who I knew, who I liked, who were part of my life at one point. And I've always resisted that because I was like, Ew, it's going to be really awkward and they're not going to care if they hear from me. And this disabused me of that to, to the point where like my advice to myself that I'm trying to follow, but also to others, is that if you get to a juncture in your life and you're asking yourself, you know, should I reach out? The answer is yes. If you've gotten to that juncture, you've answered the question. And, and I think to me, a huge takeaway from hearing all these regrets from around the world is always reach out. The book is The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. You can find it wherever you find books. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money Radio Show. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.